Welcome back to the second half on January 12th, Saturday, at SRV Oregon, where we meet under the thick cloud cover of a Portland winter, although we're all warm inside, all warm and fuzzy inside from, from these vedantic thought bombs which are being dropped in our minds. And uh, explosions of bliss and joy and love and peace and light and truth are ours. They're there for the taking. All we need to do is open up to them and manana, roll them over in our minds and come to sitanta, a definitive conclusion about these truths. We had the four ways of seeing God, the four ways of worshiping God, and the four yogas as fundamentals of Vedanta in the first half. And I didn't mean for them to take up the whole first half, but that's just the way it happens. In the second half, I wanted to run by something which I'm sure all of you can go backwards and forwards in, and that's the four jewels and the six treasures, or the four treasures and the six jewels, also called sadhana chatushtaya, that is, how one qualifies oneself for receiving the truths of Brahman. This was happening in the time of the rishis. In other words, you had to be qualified. I've told you before the story of the potter who fires his pot and it breaks apart in the kiln. That's because he didn't prepare the clay. He prepared a pot out of clay that still had little pebbles in it and foreign objects. He didn't work the clay so that when he fired the pot, it split apart in the kiln. So he goes back to his original raw material, and he takes out all the pebbles and foreign particles, and then he forms his beautiful work of art and fires it, and it stays strong and lasts a lifetime. So that's our predicament here, as we've been talking about before with many students who have come to visit, that you need to do it right, and you need to do it right from the get-go. And once you start doing it right, then you need to keep doing it right for years and years. But if you start off wrong on the wrong footing with misconceptions or disorientation of any kind or doubt, then the pot of your spiritual life, after so much practice, might not be as strong as you wanted it to be. So doing it right in this way of thinking is sadhana chatushtaya, so well illustrated in something that we've been over and over again many times, but which starts with the two Vs, which are the two Ds in English. What are the two Vs, which are the two Ds? Viveka Vairagya, which are one and two. The first two treasures, discrimination and detachment. That is to say, discrimination between the real and the unreal, between Brahman and the world, or between what is changing and what's unchanging, what's essential and what's non-essential. Those are all important. And that leads us to the acquisition of the six jewels, Shatsampati, it's called. Six jewels. It means there are these four treasures, but the third one consists of six jewels inside of its treasure chest. And those are Sama and Dhamma. Samo Dhamo Duijane. Make sure to keep the two sentinels, inner peace and self control, with you to guard against the robbers along the road of life is the song in our tradition. That is mono chalo nijaniketane O mind, return to your own home, your eternal abode. So samo damo there 
Uh, after one discriminates away the unreal and then detaches from the unreal, one finds inner peace and self-control, followed by uparati and titiksha, self-settledness. Self-centeredness is to be eschewed. But what we mean by uparati is self-settledness or contentment, a kind of inner contentment leading also to forbearance of all. When one gets inner peace and self-control, one realizes that one has to forbear the vicissitudes of relativity or the world. And that means all the problems that come up, titikshas, forbearance of heat and cold, pleasure and pain, and all the other dualities or pairs of opposites which come up. And that would then lead one to an ability to concentrate called samadhana, a special kind of concentration by which one can focus the mind inwardly. You know how difficult it is to settle the mind in meditation? Well, perhaps maybe you'd better go back, back, back before you start to try and meditate and get discrimination between the real and the unreal and put that to rest. Know that God is the only reality and the world is simply an illusion or a passing phase until you can see it as Brahman, that is. And then you need to get detachment from the unreal. You need to strengthen your detachment. Then you'll start to get inner peace and self-control. And when you do, you'll be able to settle in the self and forbear all problems. That's called putting up with the suffering of life. And we see that's really a kind of distinctive difference between those who are mature, spiritually speaking, and those who are as yet immature, is that they might be able to get a little inner peace, but they still can't put to rest the idea that they're suffering in this world. Lord Buddha, of course brought that out in his Four Noble Truths. There is suffering, there's a cause for suffering, there's a way out of suffering, and so forth. Those need to be very well understood. And of course, Buddhism is nothing other than Vedanta in one of its many forms. Swami Vivekananda said that too. So, coming to Samadhana, after one learns to forbear all the problems, know that they arise in relativity and will continually ever do so, then one begins to acquire the ability to concentrate the mind. We were just talking about ishtanishta. You can do it on a personal ideal. That's a good way of doing it. Or on the mantra. With the mantra, you can do it. We talked about that, too. You can also do it if you have the ability, and some do, in a non-dual meditation. Some beings can meditate very well right at the outset, and others have a, a very difficult time. That isn't necessarily a positive thing, either. I've noticed that those who work up to the ability to meditate go through a lot of their problems and karmas in the process, and then they can stay for meditation longer, whereas some can meditate very well at the outset and then quite often fall later into those old karmas which weren't resolved. So spiritual practice can get rid of these problems at their roots, overlooking the ideas of better and worse, inferior and superior in your own mind and in relation to your fellow aspirants. You simply follow the Guru's instructions according to your own temperament and capacity and you'll come to that great realization in time. So part of that would be samadhana, that is, ability to concentrate the mind and put it to rest. Quietude or quiescence of mind is one of the great acquisitions along the Vedantic path. In fact, using myself as an example, in San Francisco last week I was saying well, I noticed about myself that I always had devotion to God and that knowledge was easy of acquisition to me. I could recall knowledge. 
But one thing I saw that really developed in me in spiritual life was ability to meditate because at the beginning I wasn't a good meditator. So that's one thing I was very, very happy to see in myself that after 10 or 20 years of practice, then I could begin to sit in quietude of mind and could call up quietude of mind immediately and just be at peace. There was no problems with body or with subconscious or with emotions or anything in the way. All that had been worked through. So I feel like I acquired the ability to meditate in a formal sense. Of course, everyone does fall into natural meditations when they're in a sattvic state, even in their youth. You see a dog in a sattvic state sitting in the sun, you know, is is very much at peace. So everything has a sattvic state to it, but we just haven't acquired the ability as an art or to keep the mind in sattva, uh, which is, of course, what Lord Buddha and Lord Jesus and others could do. They could detach from all different stages of the mind and hold themselves in that Atman. So Samadhana is kind of a prerequisite or a penultimate stage of that. And you see where it arrives at in the sixth jewel. All important. Shraddha, yes. Faith. So here we have a very wonderful thing about the four treasures, which I've brought out time and again, is that to me, this sadhana chatushtaya is really a way of saying what is the definition of faith in Vedanta and we see what faith really takes before you arrive at it that is it was mere belief before in people but it becomes an actual manifestation or expression of their faith after they've acquired all these things so it's a very nice way of defining faith via the rishis and their realizations in Vedanta And it also shows that until you have this firm foundation of faith, you cannot acquire number four, called mumukshutvam, desire for freedom. In other words, everything before that have been little inklings of desire for freedom. That is, maybe freedom of country or freedom to enjoy anything one wants or different forms of freedom which were maybe somewhat distorted representations of the real thing, but when you have acquired true faith based on all these previous jewels and treasures, then you come to an authentic desire for freedom. That is, you want to know yourself, and the self will then set you free, as Jesus put it. You really desire that, first and foremost, among everything. And it is natural renunciation, too. It is a kind of renunciation that's not uh, based upon a condemnation, but is rather based on deification. And it happens naturally to you. With it comes pure love and pure devotion and peace of mind, quiescence of mind, and the ability to serve in the true sense of the spirit rather than colored with any kind of motive. See, that's pure karma yoga or nishkama karma. All those things come to one who have gotten this faith via discrimination and detachment and concentration and have arrived at a real desire for freedom. So these are good And I wanted to run through these really quick, which we've just done. But I want to concentrate on the second of the sadhana chatushtaya here, vairagya and detachment. So if you can efface that from the board, I'm sure it'll stay written upon your minds in letters of molten gold, shining forth in times of trial and in times of meditation. We'll go on to ten levels of vairagyam that Vedanta teaches. In other words... After you've implemented your discrimination between the real and the unreal, what form does detachment take? How can you really know that your detachment is mature? 
Patanjali gives us to us in ten stages, which are from a weak kind of detachment to an intermediate detachment to a very intense form of detachment. We know the father of yoga. He had many, many good teachings for us. We've studied before the yamas and niyamas, which I'm sure all of you could rattle off easily. In both their Sanskrit and their English equivalents. But he also has these other wonderful teachings that help us quite a bit. Different kinds of vairagyam, or detachment, levels of detachment. And these are used as principles or aids or tools in Vedanta. As I said, from weak to middling to intense forms. So, Vairagyam as a list from immature to more mature. First is Yattamana. This might be in your notes before. But after one has discriminated between real and unreal, between Brahman and the changing world or the idea of a world, then one begins to detach from what's unreal. That's important. You can't just say, oh, I see you know, Brahman's real, the world's unreal. That's kind of an affirmation stage. But then one comes to a level of dispassion and how to actually instigate that, incorporate that into the mind. Yatamana means a state of dispassion where one struggles to keep the mind from running after sensual things again. So a mind has its grooves. It wants to always vibrate back into. So a kind of detachment that you develop at that point would be a stopgap to hold the mind from running back into sensual grooves. In other words, I just realized that the objects are not Brahman, you see, but now I'm still attracted to them. So then how can my discrimination be strong? My detachment is only at a stage where I've realized the objects are unreal, but yet I'm still running after them. So there's a tendency in the mind of an aspirant to do that, to sink back into that, instead of to completely master that tendency. That is, whereas food I was attracted to and I went to it out of habit, now I just eat it because it nourishes the body, which is the shrine for the Atman. Everything is taken up and given that positive turn. It's not like you have to renounce things that aren't Brahman, because everything is Brahman, ultimately. But you have to make the distinction and remove the tendency of the mind. In fact, that is the real discrimination. Find those things in your mind which plague you and cause you to cause distinctions between this and that and remove them. That's the real renunciation. So here, at this weak stage, we find yatamana, an ability to engage a kind of dispassion which allows one to keep the mind from falling back into the old habits again. Then you get to mridya vairagya. Mridya, M-R-D-Y-A, vairagya. That's just called a moderate degree of detachment. That is, you've succeeded in keeping the mind from running back into its grooves, and now you're happy with that. It's a middling stage. It's still actually a weak form of detachment, really but at least you're not slave to the objects anymore and to the senses. You've found that there is an ability of yourself to, when you have an inclination to do that, you can stop your mind and say, oh, you don't really want that. Not by way of that kind of expression or mode, but, but it has to come to me naturally so that I'm not clinging, grabbing and clinging to something. 
out of fear or out of desire. Vashanas. That'll cause vashanas in the mind to fructify and cause some scars there, so you refrain from that. Then you have madhya, whereas mridhya really means weak, madhya means moderate. Madhya, or madhyama, would be a better way of saying it. Madhyama, with a dh. Madhyama, vairagyam. A moderate degree of attachment. A kind of abiding in that ability to keep the mind under control. Then you have karana vairagya. Now this is interesting because it's a kind of detachment brought about by some calamity in your life. That is, you'll really get dispassionate when something really bad happens to you, like loss of a child or a loved one or some injury that affects your ability to operate in the world and so forth. It brings about a kind of strong detachment from the world, but it's short-lived. Mm-hmm. A year or two later, I'll marry again, you see. So that kind of detachment doesn't last, karana vairagya. And again, here you'd say it's not that having a wife or a husband is a negative thing, that you need to never have another wife and husband again. It's that in the very beginning, you shouldn't have looked upon this person as your wife or your husband, but rather as the Atman. If you saw him as the all-pervading Atman, then you would be much more prepared for the inevitable loss of the objectified form of Brahman that appeared before you as wife and husband. Not only that, if you were seeing all as Brahman, then you'd know that there's no such thing as a soulmate, for instance. There's only one soul here. That's, of course, the idea behind child marriage in India when it was really an operation and working right, is that uh, you saw whoever was chosen for you, you saw the Atman in them and you served them. And that was your spiritual discipline as a student and as a householder working up to that. So Karnavairagya is interesting, listed as a kind of in the moderate degree of detachment, but actually very intense, but not lasting. In that way, they call it a kind of madhyama level of detachment. Anasakti is next. This is kind of a pivotal point. This is non-attachment. It's called essentially non-attachment, but it can also have its mature and its less mature stages. That is, non-attachment can mean that there's still some aversion to what one detached from. So that wouldn't be really a very mature detachment uh, because detachment in its mature state isn't based on aversion, on either attraction or aversion. Attraction was one of the things which was there in the weak stage of detachment because your mind was attracted to things and you kept falling into the same obsessive patterns and got hurt and suffered as a result. But now you've gone beyond that kind of level, but you're still into a kind of attachment which is more mature than before, but which still is characterized by the idea of aversion, kind of aversion to the world. So you haven't seen it all as Brahman, but you've seen only Brahman, and then you've X'd the world out of the equation. So that is a kind of non-attachment, which is a good springboard towards stula vairagya. S-T-H-U-L-A. It's the lowest type of detachment that is as yet immature. It's beginning to mature towards something of a higher level. In fact, the next stage starts to signify the more intense stages. Vaishikara. 
P-A-I-S-H-I, K-A-R-A. We call this a higher stage of Lord dispassion. One begins to feel the true taste of discernment or detachment or dispassion around world, objects, relationships, people, place, and things. Sort of as if the vision is slowly being cleared of subtle obstacles so that one is beginning to see through to the true nature of detachment. This is a kind of insight. In other words, I'm not just practicing detachment because I was instructed to by my guru, but I'm actually seeing the fruits of what this detachment represents. I'm starting to feel it as my own quality, a natural state of detachment that one doesn't really have to practice anymore, but just sort of occurs in one, arises in one. Adhimatra is the next level. ADH. Adhimatra. This is intense degree of detachment. This is where even enjoyment becomes painful. One doesn't want to enjoy things anymore. doesn't get the same enjoyment out of it as one used to. One can't seem to involve oneself with what one used to and get any contentment or happiness out of places, things, objects, or relationships. That's died away, so it's a more intense degree of detachment. Although not necessarily representative of it in full, I remember people telling me when they took to Vedantic teachings and started to read the scriptures, oh, I used to hang out with my friends at a bar once a week. You see, and we'd have a couple beers and talk about football and so forth. Now I can't do that anymore. In fact, it's painful for me even to go back there. And my friends are asking, why aren't you coming and enjoying us like we've done all the time in this kind of preoccupation and you just can't bring yourself to do it. So I've had that experience with several people and different examples in that even where they just can't drum up the same old pleasure and attraction that they used to. And you can see whereas if you didn't have a teacher and a path to guide you in that way, you could start thinking something's wrong with yourself. So that attraction to enjoyment and so forth passes and actually turns into a phase where enjoyment becomes painful. And you feel the nobility of just resting beyond pleasure and pain. You want to get to a place where it's just very equanimous and it's very noble, it's very ennobling of the mind. And it has to be seen as a pretty high stage of discernment or dispassion here, which is right with the world of the rishis, but may be wrong in the world of the Vyavaharikas or those who still prescribe to the world in its various uh, modes of lower wisdom. Adhimatra gives way to Audasinya, A-U-D-A, Audasinya, complete indifference to the sense life, complete indifference to the sense life. That is, one may move through the objects of the senses, one may eat or not eat, one may indulge or not indulge, but essentially there's a part of the mind that's become so detached that it's completely indifferent to any of the attractions or aversions or inclinations or non-inclination to engage in any of the sensual things. One's neither drawn to do it nor is one averse to it. So you can see that it's the beginning of a very mature kind of detachment, which will bring you samodhamo uparati titiksha samadana, that is, inner peace, self-control, forbearance, and ability to concentrate the mind 
so that it won't be drawn out by things of the senses or thoughts or worries or brooding or depression or any other thing. Those will all be mastered and one will rest in a kind of equipoise or quiescence of mind. They call this audasinya a high state of jnana. That is, it's a very high level of knowledge or wisdom. And we admire those beings who posit themselves in it and just sit free of any kind of attraction or aversion. Attraction and aversion being two of the five kleshas, or pain-bearing obstacles, which appear in our life. Egotism, ignorance, attachment, aversion, and clinging to life. Those are the five things which Patanjali lists as pain-bearing obstacles or obstructions. If we can get our mind beyond those things, then we can rest in this mature state of detachment called audasinya. From there, really, the next two stages are really just extremely intense dispassion and the most intense form of detachment. They're called tivya-vairagya and para-vairagya. Tivya is T-I-V-R-A and para, supreme. So tivya-vairagya and para-vairagya, whereas audasinya was a complete indifference to sense life, Tivya-vairagyam and para-vairagya are extremely intense levels leading to the most intense form of detachment. In other words, para-vairagya indicates no return whatsoever to worldly thoughts. It becomes entirely inward and natural. It rests in its own supreme state. We saw that in Sri Ramakrishna. So a beautiful representation of levels of detachment. So, going from the bottom up, according to this Neo-Vedanta representation, we have initial, weak, moderate, induced by outer circumstance, due to satiety, basic non-attachment, immature detachment, higher state of lower dispassion, intense detachment, complete indifference, extremely intense detachment, and supreme detachment. <laughs> so we can't ask anymore, well, tell me more about dispassion. What is this vairagya? <laughs> they've thought about it and they've given it in some different levels here to inform us of what it really is. It's not just detachment from the unreal as the basic description of it is often given, but there are differing levels of it which people go through and experience. You can see that they're allocated to middu, madhyama, and uh, tivya or para, that is weak or meek, moderate or middling, and intense or supreme. These ten stages seem as a natural result of living life. But there had to be some sort of guidance or impetus that led them, and otherwise they would just consider worldly life is what I'm here for, then I live it, and then I get married, and I have relations, I have children, and then I die. There's no higher leaning, or it's not going anywhere. So then people start asking, what's the meaning of life, and so forth. And they feel unfulfilled in this state of dotage. Yoga Vashishta actually will be very good to look into in that regard because Sri Ram gives that 
discourse of divine discontent. He talks about birth, youth, old age, disease, and, and dotage as being some of the real difficult conditions that, that he's seen. And when he sees this, he got supreme dispassion from the world when he saw what people go through. It reminds us of Lord Buddha, who, when he went outside of the castle for the first time, saw three things, basically. He saw a sick man, an old man, and then a corpse being burnt on the funeral pyre. And this brought back to him, with all the force, supreme detachment in him, combined with a desire to help do away with the sufferings of others, to find a way out of suffering. So all of this is very much interconnected. So I would see it in terms of that a mature householder who went through the stages of dispassion would keep on working, but would work with complete detachment until such a time when they themselves decided that my task is done, let karma float it away, as Vivekananda said. Uh, but we do see people going through those stages, and not just with brahmacharyas or monks, but with householders, people in the world. They get various levels of detachment from their experiences and from what they see, just like Lord Buddha did and Shankara and others. After they saw the vicissitudes of the world, uh, withdrew from them. So dispassion is a powerful lesson for meditation. Sometimes when somebody gets a vision of the Absolute within, in, in their deepest meditations, then the world will go away immediately and the eyes will roll up in the head and the tongue will cleave to the roof of the mouth and they'll sit like Christ in the wilderness. That kind of thing is a jada samadhi where the external things just completely go away and one's plunged into this deep state. And they say that, I think, if you're reading in the Avatut, then I gave it in terms of somebody who coming out of that state doesn't necessarily come out with a complete transformation at hand, that they'll come back and see the world again, and they'll move amongst the world, and some of what they experienced in that Jada Samadhi doesn't get realized. That is, they'll remember the experience very definitely, but according to their capacity, they'll return to the world and operate just as anyone else does. Maybe the next jada samadhi or the next level of samadhi will accomplish something more intense in them. But in the case of chaitanya samadhi, they often describe it as a person comes back to the world with full realization of what they experienced in jada samadhi, and it just transforms the whole existence. It's kind of a paravairagya, and makes one absolutely detached, but able to work in the world without the slightest desire or sense of motivation or any hope for any kind of outcome. They see it all as Brahman, so what is there to work for? Anyone laboring under suffering at that point would be worthy of their attention and their help, but the suffering itself would be unreal. So they don't identify with it. So you see, that's quite different from, from somebody who has compassion, who's identified with suffering as real. There you have a reformist or a healer, or a less mature level. But if you absolutely know the suffering to be unreal, or put another way, that it's God who suffers, not the human being, then you have a whole different level of understanding of the role of suffering and its outcome. Lex Hickson described that very well in his book, Coming Home, uh, in one chapter. And we see Swamiji talking about it in the complete works, too. In fact, Christ on the cross, O Lord, why have you forsaken me? wasn't his admission that he had given up or that he was in despair, but it was actually a famous hymn of the times. So he was singing it on the cross to show of his ability to transcend suffering and death, that he was the true 
Christ's self. He was the Atman within, as we would say, and that the suffering was just apparent. That is painful to the body and the nerves, but greatly alleviated and maybe even transcended in his case by the fact that he knew himself to be the absolute consciousness which was unborn and undying. So this brings up lots of good questions and confers lots of good teachings, this 10 or 11-tiered state of Vairagya. And of course it comes after discrimination between the real and the unreal, and it leads to inner peace and self-control and and forbearance and, and faith. And the ability of the mind to concentrate, which is one of the great pivotal points of all. So we have another... 15 minutes or so, I thought we'd look into some other Vedantic teachings. I think I'd like to look at the Mahavakyas. You remember the four Mahavakyas? The great Vedantic dictums or the great sayings or statements. Mahavak, the great speech. There are four of them that appear in the Upanishads. They direct the mind towards formless reality and away from maya. So they're very good to use and to contemplate and to realize. And they are beyond mere affirmation, of course. And this is described by the rishis by taking them apart. Remember them? Does anyone know them? Tattvamasi. Ayamatma Brahma. Aham Brahmasmi and Pragyanam Brahma. Now, if we ever get this book out called The Nine Limbs of Bhakti, which I wrote maybe a decade ago, but which we're still waiting to put out, I have a really good description of each of these and their flavor, because they each have a slightly different flavor, but more to the point of what I want to express here is the way the rishis saw them. Regarding that thou art, there's an implied meaning to each of these, that, thou, and art. And you'll find that in Gautapada's commentary, too, on the Mandukya Upanishad. You'll see that this is discussed. That is, that the direct meaning of that is Brahman with attributes, while the implied meaning is Brahman without attributes. So you say that if you say Brahman with form, but the implied meaning is really Brahman, the formless behind it. It's like the case of the red-hot iron ball. The ball borrows the properties of red and heat. In that way, Brahman has attributes and is without attributes, and those are borrowed by any form in nature. The mind gets its property to think and to intellectualize, and the prana gets its power to move, and the body moves accordingly, all because of this subtle Brahman underlying everything. Sort of like the heat underneath the pot of water, which has vegetables in it. There are like four things there. The vegetables are jumping about, and the child says, Oh, look, Mother, the vegetables are jumping. He thinks that they're jumping on their own. And then the next explanation is it's the water that's making them jump. That's not right either. Then the heat's in the water making them jump. That's more to the point. But actually under the pot itself is this source, which is causing the whole thing to move. So you go deeper and deeper into subtler levels of that, and you find this ultimate reality, Brahman, behind it. And of course, then Advaita Dhyan, you get your meditation on the ultimate reality that way. So the word thou in that thou art 
has two meanings as well. It directly conveys the idea of an individual soul that has become associated with maya and all the traits in maya, but it also suggests the consciousness which underlies it as well. So thou has those two meanings. Again, a direct meaning and an implied meaning. So that you can't just take the surface level, but you have to always see something that's implied by the statement itself. Then it comes forth with lots of power and it strikes the mind and wakes it up. So what about art? Of course, art here, not meaning finer arts, but the idea here is that the meaning conveyed in art is the identity between that and thou. Brahman and Shakti, or there's Shakti and Maya, or there's supreme soul and individual soul. There's always a correlation between these two. So it's like since personal God and Jiva seem different, like the idea of an ocean and a lake that are connected by the river. So there's always a relationship between the two. They're all water. It's all one, but they're appearing to be two different things. That's all the idea of this relationship between the apparently individualized soul, which is seemingly separate from the ultimate, and its actual connection with it, which shows it to be one, like the sun and a glowworm. Very different kinds of light there, but it's all light. Then that thou art would mean harmonization of the two, the meaning of them and the harmonization of the two, which seem to be at contrasting levels, but which are really one. It actually brings up a nice story. It's called the tenth, and the story is that that ten friends are going on a journey, and they reach a river, and they all plunge in to reach the other side. It's kind of a swift river, and when they get to the other side, the leader counts one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and he starts lamenting because he's lost the tenth person, and they all start weeping and crying. And some man comes along, some sage. He says, Why are you crying? Why are you weeping? And he says, because we've lost one of our friends in the raging river. And he said, well, count again. So the man goes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And he says, see, we're only nine. And then the sage taps him on the chest, thou art the tenth. And so that's the definitive moment where the teacher says to you, after you've looked at the world and everything that's changing and mutable, and then you are that. So that thou art. So that's the story that the rishis used to indicate. Count the self, then you finally realize that thou art. And it has implications on many different levels. I mean, you created the world and the universe, everything is existing in your mind, all on the level of mantra and mantra science. You'll find that it can all be traced back to this ultimate I. And when you find that's true, then you can exercise your power over it. You can become a yogi or yogini in full control of all those powers with absolute realization and then abide in the self, which is the purpose of life and existence is to realize God. That's what Sri Ramakrishna said. And then one can enjoy the lila, free of the maya, and know oneself to be the nitya. So that's thou art is a very powerful statement. As are all these others. You see they each have a little bit different flavor. Whereas tatvamasi or that thou art suggests that there are two things that are really one. Aham brahmasmi really goes straight to the heart of the matter. I am Brahman. There's no suggestion of any two, except in the sense that there's an I and there's a Brahman. But the am, I am Brahman, uh, aham 
I, Brahmasmi, am that or that Brahman, then makes the correlating and connecting point again. Which is the same for Ayamatma Brahma. This self is Brahman. It seems like there are two selves here. The ego self and the ultimate self. But this Vakya, or this great saying, declares them both to be Brahman. Or that there is no difference between one and the other. Jivatman is Paramatman. And then the fourth one, which we were trying to recall, very beautiful, Pragyanam. Brahma. Pragya is pure consciousness or supreme intelligence and simply states Brahman is pure consciousness. What is God? The Rishis stated it's pure consciousness without any modifications, alterations, or overlays. In the Vivekuchudamani, which some of us have read, we studied that yet formally? the Viveka Chudamani, we find Shankara giving an illustration in ten parts of this idea of the four Mahavakyas and how they get realized. First, one hears the truth from the teacher. Second, one reflects on the meaning. Third, one realizes through reason and logic that the words are true. Fourth, one contemplates Brahman, free of doubt. Five, one rids oneself of false misconceptions. Six, one relinquishes social formalities, beautification of the body, over-engrossment in study, and so forth. Seven, one becomes purified by incessant meditation on Brahman. Eight, one begins to inhale the fragrance of the self, to put it in Shankara's word. Nine, one more and more gives up desires. And ten, has uninterrupted realization of the Atman, abiding in the Atman. So, a ten-step process in which, after one hears one of the Mahavakyas from the lips of the illumined preceptor, classically one goes forward to these levels of realization. So we've actually reached 12.30 on the dot, and this installment of Fundamentals of Vedanta has taken us through the four ways of seeing God, or Brahman, four ways of worshiping Brahman, four yogas, the four Mahavakyas, so it's been sets of four. Oh, yes, and of course the four treasures. And then as addendums to that, we got a rendering of ten stages of vairagyam. So we've covered quite a lot, a lot to think about, and I hope all of you who've heard it before have heard it on a new level and can contemplate it uh, on deeper levels too as well as you go about the town, which is nothing less than the body of Mother Kali that we move through, or apparently so. So tomorrow we'll have a second installment of Fundamentals of Vedanta and go through some other teachings that have profound implications to our state of being Vedantists. And then tonight we have Holy Mother's birthday in the Shrine Room and we'll offer her flower lays and sing the 108 names of Sharda. Tomme Brahma Sanatani Ma, you are the eternal Brahman in very much the spirit of the four Mahavakyas. You're welcome and your friends are all welcome. So thank you all for your kind attentions and we'll end with a chant. Om Padram Om Padram Karnebi Srinayama Devaha Badram Bhasyema Akshabir Yajatraha 
Stirai rangaish tushtuvamsa stanuvir Vyashema devahitam yadayuhu Svastina indra vrida shravaha Svastina pusha vishvadevaha Svastina starksho arishtanemihi Svastina brihaspatir dadatu Om Shanti 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 May we see with these eyes what is good and spiritual. May we hear with these ears what is noble and uplifting. May we, while worshipping the Lord and Mother of the Universe with healthy minds and bodies, live a life which is beneficial to ourselves and to others. Om Peace, Peace, Peace. May peace be unto us and may peace be unto all. Oh